Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their teardrop trailer that they have nicknamed Maggie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. For the past three years, they have been filming a documentary about heritage breed animals entitled The Holstein Dilemma, Heritage Breeds and the Need for Biodiversity. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Hi, I'm Alara, your host. Today we're visiting Ken Spann and Val Barnica. They're the owners of Y-Bar Hitch in Montrose, Colorado. They raise registered Suffolk Punch draft horses. So let me tell you a little bit about how we met them. We decided we wanted to go to the National Western Stock Show, which is a stock show that's been around almost 115 years now in Denver, Colorado. It's held every January. One of the events that they have there is a draft horse pull. They actually have quite a few of them. So in one of these pulls that we went to, when one of the teams came in, the announcer got all excited, and he said, Oh, folks, you're in for a treat. These are the Suffolk Punch Horses. You are in for a treat. And so we decided afterwards to go to the barn and uh, find the Suffolk Punches and see them a little closer than we got to see them in the arena. We met Val and Ken, and we saw them hitching and unhitching their team, and we spoke with them for a few minutes. We'll share that with you. And then they also invited us up to Montrose. Uh, It's actually the Gunnison-Montrose area. They were doing a six-hitch team for the Gunnison Cattlemen's Days event, and that's held in July every year, and that's another one that's been around over 100 years. So we got to see Val driving his six-hitch team, which is a feat of skill and strength, let me tell you. But here's the interview that we had uh, both at the National Western Stock Show for a couple minutes and the Y-Bar Hitch Ranch on that afternoon in July. Let's go to Colorado. So first we started out in the barn at the National Western with Ken describing the characteristics of his Suffolk Punch. Hi, I'm Ken Spann. I'm with the Y-Bar Hitch, headquartered at Montrose, Colorado. And these are Suffolk Punch draft horses, and they're extremely rare. There's about 900 of them in all of North America. Um, This is Eagle Ridge Rose. She's one of our foundation mares. Um, She's five years old. And she has most of the characteristics of a true Suffolk Punch draft horse. Suffolk Punches were developed in England. They're very rare. Um, They were primarily used for farming. They weren't used as war horses. And during the um, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300s, they were used primarily for farming in Suffolk and Norfolk counties in England. They almost went completely extinct following World War II. The numbers got down very, very small. In 2015 and 2016, there were about 52 of these horses foaled in North America. We're really fortunate to have the seven mares. We've put them together over the course of the last half a dozen years, and we actually have three live weanling foals at home in western Colorado. Rose is very typical uh, of the breed, but she's also one of the outstanding foundation mares. Uh, She was fourth in the main mare class at the National Western Stock Show in Denver. We're very, very proud of her. And uh, 
As you can see, she has the typical Suffolk punch disposition. She's very gentle, very forgiving, very loving, but she has great mass, great structure, a lot of power in her legs and in her hindquarters uh, that will pull a wagon, pull a carriage, or as they were developed, pull a plow. And they were, they were developed to do that. And we're, we're just thrilled to have her with us and uh, be able to represent the Suffolk Punch breed as one of the rare breeds. We're encouraged. There's a lot of people that are beginning more interested in taking care of these horses and, and uh, bringing them back. She has great slope to her shoulders. She has huge mass behind in the quarters behind it relative to her height. She actually has a shorter cannon bone. Suffolks are known for a shorter cannon bone, yet she travels straight, true, and correctly. Her head carriage is, is, what it sh is what it should be, but probably most important is that tremendous disposition that she has. I mean, they're incredibly smart. They will uh, listen to commands. You just saw perhaps the obstacle course out there. Much of that is not the bits in their mouth. It's they're listening to us, and they, they, they very much understand. We're able to drive these horses in multiple hitches, four ups, six up, four abreast, three abreast, and most of that is done by verbal commands. They, they understand what we're talking to them. But we, but we work with them a lot and live with them, but they have the mind and the mindset to accept that learning from a very young age. You know, there's very little feathering here. This is not true feathering. Feathering would come clear up to here. The most, she's just got her winter hair coat on. Suffolks are not feathered horses, and the reason for that is they were developed to plow, and so over the centuries, they didn't want the mud, so they've been selected against feathering. So this, these are not feathered horses. That's just winter hair coat there. Feathering would come clear up into here. There's no feathering here at all. So okay. now this is my understanding. Ken talked about the chestnut color. Yes, it's chestnut. They're always this chestnut, Carl. There's seven different shades of the chestnut in, a Suffolk, in the Suffolk horses. There's, there's a dark red liver color to a mild, mild chestnut, but all true registered Suffolk punch horses are this chestnut color. C-H-E-S-N-U-T. There's no T in the middle. Chestnut. Okay, and this mane is just a little bit lighter, but not, as, not yeah. a blonde. They almost call it flaxen. Okay. It's almost flaxen. And uh, traditionally, we, we, we braid her and we show them with raffia braided, in the, braided into the manes. We have raffia that we braid into the manes. It's a traditional way to show a Suffolk horse uh, uh, in tradition with, with how they're done in England. And we have done that here at the National Western in the halter classes. We showed her with the raffia, braid raffia into their manes and into their tail. So the temperament is a really important thing about... It's a huge thing. It's a, it, to me, it's, it is perhaps the most pleasing attribute of this particular breed of horses. They'll, 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 it's a huge thing. There's a reason this temperament when the, when the knights were drawn off to the Crusades and the women stayed for 300 years, for six or seven generations in England, they were left with these horses. And the ones that were unmanageable, they killed them and ate them. And the ones that they were, the mares that they were allowed to breed were the mares that they could handle and get along with. And so they kind of, for about 300 years, bred a little bit of that aggressiveness out of these horses by an accident of history. What kind of jobs does a Suffolk Punch do on a farm? These horses are uh, originally developed, were originally plow horses. 
when, in, in the, when we had to plow and till the earth. They were developed for, for this. A lot of these horses um, till the earth, harrow pastures, haul manure, haul hay, and they're used for that in their everyday work lives. Obviously, these horses, this particular horses, these are show sets of Sheffix. We pull wagons, stagecoaches, chuck wagons, wedding carriages, major surreys. Um, we've done major appearances in, in this part of the United States. With, so they're very, very versatile. They do many, many, many things because they have the mindset to understand that they'll do what you ask you to. They're very, very willing. So this mare has this mare in the last six weeks has been on a hay wagon, a buggy, a vis-a-vis -vis carriage, a chuck wagon, and a wheel horse and a stagecoach in the last six weeks. And has had fifty thousand people. And had fifty thousand people come out by and, and see her. Yes. Yeah. And then, from Denver and thirty degrees in January, we went to Western Colorado and Montrose and Gunnison in July. I think it was ninety-five. We got to speak to both Ken and Val this time. I'm Val Barnica, and I operate the Y-Bar Hitch, Suffolk Punch Horses with my partner Ken Spann, here in Montrose, Colorado. We also uh, operate out of Almont um, and travel around western Colorado as well as outside of the state. Some, we're trying to promote these incredible Suffolk Punch Horses to the rest of the world and show them what an amazing breed they are. I'm Ken Spann, I'm Vice President of Spann Ranches, and I'm Valerie's partner in the Y-Bar Suffolk Punch Horses, and it's my pleasure to be engaged in both, both activities. So how did you both decide to get involved with Suffolk Punches? It was kind of a lucky event. Um, we had an older horse, a Percheron, that unexpectedly passed away and Val was broken-hearted about it. It's a long story, but she was broken-hearted about it. So I immediately started searching, searching, searching for a good, young, sound team. And I found a mother-daughter team of Suffolk Punch horses in central Iowa, a long ways from here. And we were able to get them and when they came we absolutely fell in love. It's Bert and Nell. And we absolutely fell in love with them and we've been Suffolk Punch people ever since. It sounds like the same kind of gift that my husband gives me. He gives me a truckload of manure at the house. It's the most romantic thing I can possibly imagine he might give me. <laughs> so why you just decided on this breed because you found there? Or you said there's some, there's some uh, meaning to this, either through heritage or something else? I had had experience with other, with other breeds of horses. I, I fed a lot of cattle with horses for many, many years. And I had been around good Belgian teams and good Percheron teams and good Shire teams and bad Percheron teams and bad Shire teams and bad Belgian teams. And this was an opportunity for us to try something different and something relatively unique. And basically at our stages in our lives, I concluded that if we were going to do this and all the work that goes with it, that we may as well do something unique and different and special. And we've been very blessed with these horses. It's been a real blessing to both of us. Now tell me why you, you chose the Suffolk Country. It chose you. I think these horses picked me um, because I'm young enough to still have the energy to get out there and promote this breed. And I love them so much, as you can see, after spending some time with us over the last few days. And we have 20 of them. And... I feel like I have a great connection with these horses, and it's what I was born to do. So 
that's the reason I choose this breed. And the more that we learn about them and the more people that are brought into our lives because of these horses, the more thankful and blessed we feel. So it's my understanding just on the, I'm, uned, I'm very uneducated in all things. I've never gone to ag school or anything, but it's my understanding that these horses are extremely rare compared to other breeds. If you could tell me about the numbers in this country and why it might be important that you're, uh, you are educating the public with, with with your displays as you go through the streets? <laughs> well, there's somewhere between 900 and 1,200 of these horses in North America, so they are incredibly rare. Um, they were all but extinct in England. They come from Suffolk, England, and there's around 157 or so in England now. There were seven in Australia. So the numbers are dwindling, and I feel like they have such a huge presence back east in the woods but nobody's going to see them in the woods. Somebody has to bring these horses out into the public and show people how incredible they are and how versatile they are. Because you've seen us over the last few days. We've, we've done a six-up hitch in a parade. Then we've gone and done a wedding. And we could turn right around and do farming with them if we needed to today. So... Um, they're a little shorter. We just think their versatility is unbelievable, and people need to know about that. Now, this breed, it's my understanding that this breed is relatively unchanged over time. I mean, we're talking, what, 500 years or something mm -hmm. like that? Um, are we? Go ahead, go <laughs> I ahead. love it. <laughs> okay, we're, it's relatively unchanged because it was isolated, fens on one side, and I believe it's, it's it, geographically isolated, and so there was not a lot of change, and I also understand there was not a lot of sale uh, activity going on with this horse because they were so valuable on the farm um, for distribution of genetics. Would yes. you agree with that? Yes, and the, 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 their genetic pool is pretty tight to the point that we have to be careful about inbreeding um, and their uh, development over the, over the last several hundred years has kind of kept them relatively pure to what they originally developed as. And um, we want to try and be true to that as much as we possibly can. And uh, we're fortunate that the American Suffolk Horse Association has a good stud book. It's online, it's, you know, it's digitized. We can, we can keep track and make projections as we go forward breeding these horses. There were a very, very small number of foals born in the United States and North America and Canada last year, about 42 of them exactly. And uh, we had three of the 42. And so, you know, there's a huge responsibility for us to try and do the right thing and get the right matings so that as we go forward, uh, the genetic uh, material is, is, is taken care of and preserved and the confirmation and the consistency is there in every, in every offspring. Yeah. Now, somebody might say, well, around a thousand horses, that sounds like a big number to me. If you could explain the concept of the genetic bottleneck and why a thousand horses is not a huge pool to work with. Well... Any, any, bio, any biologist will tell you that there's a certain point where the, the, the breeding population will inbreed upon itself and the, and, the, and the genetics will, the bad parts of any genetic chromosome matings will amplify and then the, then the population will implode basically. And uh, you need to have enough, enough animals in any species to assure genetic diversity over time. And as you get down to these larger animals that have long gestation periods and relatively short lives, in the scale of things, you have to be very careful about keeping enough genetic base there to 
uh, allow for that diversity in the gene pool to stay there. Val, you mentioned to me as we were standing in back of that trailer looking at the backsides of all these horses that these are punchier looking other than these and that you're trying to go back to the punchy look. If you could describe for me please what the punchy look means to you. <laughs> And, and, and behavioral traits, too, because that's a part of genetics. I think the behavior is there in all of these horses. Um, I, I think it's safe to say we have 20 of them, and we have friends who have another 20 that we've had our hands on. And you, this is what you get. You get this kind, willing, docile personality. So I don't think that that punchiness is necessarily has to do with their shape. But that round rear end that's on those mares of ours, I think is just what we're going for. And that was more typical of those original Suffolk punches. And the punches in England are bigger than the punchers in the United States. And I think we're all kind of heading back towards that and just breeding towards that. And I'm not sure of all the details of how this is going, but the Suffolk Punch Society in, in uh, England and in the United States is working together to try and type some DNA and look at what stallions may be better for us to be breeding with in order to get those punchy shapes and the, the stocky legs and that kind of thing. Um, so I think there's going to be some, some folks, some real interesting activity happening, happening over the next few years with people that are trying to get that um, developed. I think they are doing some of that in England right now, and we're going to try to get that going on our end as well. And try and ship these horses back and forth between the different countries so that we can work on that d diversity. I think one of the, the challenges that we've had is um, location, location, location. We've been to British Columbia three times, four times now, I guess, to buy horses. And there are horses in Texas. Uh, but for us to find a stallion, when we started this, the nearest stallion was in Ledbetter, Texas, Texas. Um, now I have one in South Dakota that we can get our hands on in order to breed with. But I know that there's been some people in, in the western United States who have bred to... They've been breeding to make mules, beautiful Suffolk mules. They're lovely, but it would have been great if those mares had been bred to Suffolk's instead. And now they belong to the Y-bar Hitch. So we'll be working towards that. In fact, I, I think they're all bred now with... Um, Suffolk babies. Now this horse, it, it, it strikes me, it, was stri it struck me as I was looking in, at the hitch yesterday, they don't look like a huge horse. They don't look at what I would consider to be a draft horse until are, you look at a, a regular riding horse. Up. And part of that is deceptive. Um, they are large horses. These horses average eight, that you're looking at here average 18 and a quarter, 1,825 pounds. And uh, they're 16-3, 16-4 hands. So they're not a 19-hand huge wheel horse or a 20-hand wheel horse. But they're still awfully massive. And uh, a saddle horse, for example, would weigh 1,100. So they outweigh your average western saddle horse by seven or 800 pounds. And, uh, but it's deceptive. And I think for you it's probably deceptive because these are, this particular set is very uniform. So you, because of their uniformity, you use lose some sense of the scale when you look at them. But I could actually put a harness, I mean, if I could put a harness, I could put a harness sure. on that horse. Sure, they're 16-3. Okay. They're not 18-19. Yeah. Now, in terms of the, the poundage that they can pull, would you, would you describe that? Oh, I, I, have, I would have no problem, no problem in that six-horse hitch yesterday 
rating, uh, rating a ton of horse. So we ought to be able to pull easily six ton rolling and we ought to be able to pull between 4,500 and 5,000 of dead weight just on the ground. Um, many, many years these horses ha can have fed cattle on our ranches in the wintertime on sleds and it was nothing to have the sled in 30 inches of snow, the sled weighs 3,000, 3,500, to have an additional 4,000 pounds of hay on top of a two ton so they could literally be pulling six and a half, six and a half, seven thousand pounds of hay on a sled through 30 inches of snow with the, with the friction that's created. So the, their power capacity, even though they're smaller, is amazing. It's amazing. Now, your dad, we were talking about haying yesterday. Explain to me what these horses might do in a day's work 60 years ago. Well, we did it for many, many years. Um, they pulled a horse mower. A ground-driven horse mower, either a, either a John Deere or, an, or an, a McCormick, or in our case, we had Oliver horse mowers, five-foot cutter bars, so you might have to have five teams of five five-foot mowers to get 25 feet of cutter bar on the ground, and uh, an extra man to then to sharpen sickles and five men to drive, so that's ten horses, and then they would have a buck raking system or a scatter raking dump rake system each with a team of horses so you might have three dump rakes and four buck rakes pulling hay to a loose hay stack that the stacker was also articulated with a horse and pivoted and it was a Jenkins stacker with big tower with a platform and then the horses pulled it and everything all the motive power was provided by horseback there was nothing mechanical involved in it all and we did that for many many years they're stockier and they have shorter necks too. So tell us about how they're built for uh, farm work, please. Well, they're, they're compact. Probably the, the number one thing, if you think about it, is you have to feed these animals year-round. And so their compact size, you're not keeping so much mass alive with a feed demand. And so per unit of pound, you get an awful lot of uh, production out of a lighter, smaller animal who still is able to carry a big collar, carry a big harness, pull a big log, pull a plow, pull a disc, pull people, and uh, proportionately to their mass generate an awful lot of power at less cost to keep them over the length of their lives. That's some, something that many people don't understand about draft horses. We see the big fancy huge Shire Clydesdales mm -hmm. shows, but it's my understanding they're breeding them really, really big for the public and not necessarily for their original purpose. Would you think that's true? Um, they, they're breeding them very, very large and they, 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 they like to see the animation of their action in their legs. and. Uh, that may or may not have advantages in terms of their ability to pull a line of draft on a very, very, very heavy load. That's why you see the big horse pullers that are the Belgians that are pulling or Suffolk's that pull. They're a little closer to the ground because their their point of leverage is closer to the ground, you know. And so their innate curiosity is also really an attribute, you know. They he thinks that he thinks that we ought to be taking a little better care of him today. He came over to see if I had a treat. Now you're here in the era where, and you have an animal that lends itself nicely to artificial insemination if you need to, which has been used broadly in the horse world. Do you or do you not do this and why? To say that it is used broadly in the horse world is a fact and a misstatement, at the, mischaracterization at the same time. Draft horse semen does not freeze and hold its motility as well as quarter horse or racehorse semen does. 
And so there is an initial threshold challenge that you have to get over is will the semen of a certain draft stallion, whether he's Suffolk or Clyde or Percheron or Belgian or Shire, will that semen ship and freeze with enough motility and life upon defreezing that uh, it, be, it's, it becomes economically feasible to do it. Quarter horse semen you know, it might, might ship with 80% motility on arrival, on thawing. Draft horse semen, you're really lucky if you get 30%. So that differential changes the frequency and the success of the outcomes. And so while we are very fortunate here at Colorado and Colorado State University to have one of the very, very top equine facilities in the nation, you know, it's 100 miles from, 200 miles from us, I guess. The, the challenge is not the technology. The challenge is the actual ability of the semen itself to survive the freezing process. We would love, Valerie and I would love to be able to successfully ship semen at a reasonable cost uh, from England, from the remaining three or four principal sires. But the percentage of the, of the opportunity of a successful outcome falls dramatically. And so it's in, in some ways, as we're trying to rebuild the population, to go to live cover is actually a faster way to get there. That's very interesting because uh, the faster way I watched you, you, you uh, trailer all those horses, that's not a fast process. Getting there unloading is not a fast process. Getting to British Columbia, if you're breeding up there, is not a fast process. So it's actually easier to do that. But it's about higher percentage. But it's about the outcome over 11 or 12 months. It's not about the the initial deal. The other thing is you have a tremendous setup cost to set a mare up for AI, and if you're setting her up and you have the ultrasound costs and the scanning costs and you have to load her and take her to a veterinarian or you have to pay the veterinarian to come, you have all that costs. And if you have an 80% chance of an outcome or a 90% chance of an outcome as opposed to a 30 or a 25% chance of an outcome, the, the relative outcome potential becomes very significant in terms of economics. And we're willing to, to, to shoulder some of that economic cost, but not every couple that wants to have a, a nice team of Suffolk Punch horses can sustain that economics in terms of a broad cross-section of, of, the, of the equine people in the country. So there is an argument that people might say, yes, you're saying it's heading toward an extinction level uh, from the breed perspective, but you can always artificially inseminate. It's not necessarily an option. It's an option, but there are practical application issues with it that are that are deeper and harder to overcome than what you might see in the thoroughbred industry or in the quarter horse industry. But it's risk reward because if you're saying there's no there's no way to go back and, and get it back once it's done, we really need to keep these animals on the ground in order to assure ourselves of the best chance of, of keeping this breed around. Correct? Yes. I, I think too because Ken and I are backyard farmers doing this and we have outside full-time jobs elsewhere, we can't take the time that w might be involved to set a mare up and go through this whole process and get the semen shipped to us and then have that fail, and we find out two weeks later, and then we start again, and, and it's hot here, and I don't want to have babies in July. We need to have our babies kind of in a pile 
hopefully, you know, March, April, and get them all together and get that, that breeding program started because we've got some outside work to do as well. And I'd like to be able to get all of my youngsters started in a timely fashion and to kind of be able to be home and start them at the same time. I can't have babies in June. We are also trying to have a carriage business and a wedding business to help with some of the expenses of 20 Suffolk horses. Um, again, I need to, to get those babies on the ground early before my season, my summer season gets started. That's one of the things that we've been talking about with farmers is economic viability of heritage breeds because you don't have the same ability to do quantities and, and economics of scale with something that's a smaller horse. Uh, you know, in, in any animal, that's, that's the reality. But with something like this, you use them for carriage rides and things like that. And you said to me, I wish you could see them in the farm. Weather didn't cooperate. The, the drought doesn't, didn't cooperate. But I wish you could see them in the farm because that's what they were bred to do. Now tell me why you choose to have them do carriage rides. If that's, if that's something that you didn't originally want to, you know, that wouldn't be your preference necessarily. Visibility. How are those people back east going to sell a horse if nobody knows what they are? People in western Colorado know what a Suffolk punch is today. They didn't five years ago. People at Cheyenne Frontier Days have seen Suffolk punches now. They'll see us when we go to the Rose Bowl Parade. They'll see us when we go to the Fort Worth Parade. Uh, I think it's a visibility thing. People have to see that, and I can tell them that we do farm work, and you can go to my Facebook page and see some of the farm work we do. But some... Somebody out of our group of Suffolk Punch owners has to get out there and market these horses somehow so people see them. Do you think that using these horses over time for a different purpose like that, or for a purpose that's a little different than its original uh, intent, do you think that that changes the nature, the character, or the genetics of this horse over a 20-year breeding program? Not at all. Not at all. You can't change the genetic the genetic makeup or the desire of a thousand years worth of breeding in 20 years. Not at all. I don't, I don't think that for a second. I think what we're able to demonstrate is that these horses have a tremendous amount of versatility, that they can be used in a wide variety of settings. Um, the Suffolk punches are ridden a lot. We don't ride ours, but they are ridden a lot. Um, they can be used as pack animals. They can be used in th in the right hands uh, in a highly visible show type setting and be very competitive with anything that's out there it's that's what we're trying to demonstrate and it, and if if we if we have people that want to own Suffolk horses because they'll work a, a market garden for them great if we have people that want to own Suffolk punch horses because they can run a, a small carriage business in Cody, Wyoming or New Orleans, Louisiana, great. During our conversation, I asked Ken about the institutional knowledge being lost in farming. People underestimate often the skill that it takes to manage a certain set of landscapes whether it's you know high altitude forests or farm ground or crop ground or pasture or whatever there are there are innate skills there are learned skills and there is experience um, we are in a very serious drought situation right here right now and we are managing based on years and years of experience 
working our way through that, providing feed and forage for our livestock, while at the same time trying to save some reserves for next year. And part of that comes from experience. And you can't learn it in school. It's not taught in school. And as our society as our society moves further and further generationally away from the land, there is going to be a very steep learning curve at some point that may catch us as a society. And that is that, that to me is a concern. So if the average farmer is 58 and it's all institutional knowledge for the first, I mean, you can only learn so much in ag school. Uh, do you see something that, uh, a path that we might take that might help farmers across, farming across this country to not be lost? I think we need to incentivize um, farming. And, I, and, and, and by that I mean we need to be positive about it, recognize the contributions that it makes to society on a broader scale. Um, it's not just the food and fiber that's pulled off of it. It's the, the, the vistas, the open space. That grass out there is creating oxygen, the carbon retention that's occurring, um, the wildlife habitat that's along in these areas that are, that are undeveloped. We, it, I think society is beginning to recognize those values, but on a mass scale we don't because we're down to a 10-minute soundbite or a 30-second soundbite. And it's hard to communicate that information in a 30-second soundbite. Again, we want to thank Ken and Val of Y-Bar Hitch Suffolk Punch Horses in Montrose, Colorado for having us out today. For more information about Ken Span and Val Barnica and their Y-Bar Hitch Suffolk Punch Horses, please visit their Facebook page at facebook.com Hitch. Also, please visit American Suffolk Horse Association at suffolkpunch.com. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. We'd also like to thank our producer, Michelle Council. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, all rights reserved, copyright 2019.